Dear Father, give us the heart and attitude of the attention to really absorb what's on this page this morning. Uh, Father, it has to come from you that we could even do that in the first place. I know that. And so uh, I also know, Father, we come in on a Sunday morning with a lot of things rattling around our head. We're probably tired in some cases or we're thinking about the rest of our day or maybe it's just the work week that we face ahead or school homework that is yet to be finished. And gosh knows what else, Father. Thank you so much that you put a pause in our busy week just to sit in and consider things that have eternal significance. I don't care what we have planned this week, Father. None of that's going to be in our minds come eternity, is it? But this, the Word of God, this will be everlasting, Father. I pray that you would uh, give us a reason to take uh, extra moments to concern ourselves with what it says this morning. So we don't miss what you have for us, Father. That's the thing we, we care the most about this morning, is that we're responsive to you and to your Spirit. So, Father, do that work in our hearts as we open your Word this morning. And uh, show us your truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we're at the end of the second warning of the book of Hebrews. These warnings are like the mile markers. We're going to mention them all the way through the book. And as we put them all together over the course of this study, I think you'll see a nice pattern that develops as the writer himself is at work creating it. I mentioned already that you can see these things almost like rings on a bullseye, where as he starts talking about warnings, he starts sort of on the outer edges talking to the person who's not a believer but has been encountering the the gospel, just they didn't take hold of it. They drifted by it. And then he moved in a ring, so to speak. And now we're looking at the second warning, finishing up today, the warning to the one who's still yet not a Christian, but they got closer. They've hung around for a while. They've made Christianity a part of their life in some sense, but they haven't actually believed it at the core of who they are. And so the writer began with this simple definition of being a Christian, He started in chapter 3 by saying, we are a part of Christ's house. We are a Christian. In other words, we're part of the church if we hold fast our confession of Christ firm until the end. And those who did not hold fast their confession would be those who had not yet entered into the Lord's rest, he said. That is, resting from their works of salvation, entering into the salvation that comes by faith alone. And the writer reminded us of that history of Israel in which he saw those who were barred from entering the physical form of rest in the desert because they had unbelief in God's promises. And they suffered that fate even though they had been around God. You know, they saw him do marvelous things, amazing things in their very presence. They knew he existed. You could have taken a poll of those in the desert. How many of you believe God exists? You would have got a 100% yes out of that group. But they failed to trust in his word. As the writer of Hebrews will say later in this letter in chapter 11, he says, without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe Two things, he says. First, that he is. All right, well, that's self-evident. You've got to believe God exists. But then he adds step two. He says, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. It's this concept of reward that lies at the heart of faith. That we acknowledge not only God's existence, but that he's a God who makes promises and keeps them. And that's why we define faith not merely as a faith in God, but in God's promises. That we believe him at his word. So the writer asks the church to be diligent, to encourage one another, as long as today is still called today, as long as the opportunity still exists, that we should all know him, that we should not suffer in unbelief, we should not fall in the cracks like the ones in Israel. That was the heart of the second warning. That's what we've been involved in up to this point. And as he ends this warning today in chapter 4, he adds a final word of exhortation, one that's become very well known in the church. In fact, 
I wouldn't be surprised if many of you can quote verse 12 with me by heart, which is where we pick up this morning. Chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. The writer says, For the word of God is living and active, and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. The writer now makes this statement to the church, one that many of us have heard. As I said, some of us may know by heart. Probably you've heard it quoted. But I want you to notice it in detail today. This may be the first time you've actually studied it at a level that we need to study it. Verse by verse, word for word, and it starts in a very simple way. He says, for the word of God. So let's be clear on what we're talking about here. This statement is about the power of the scriptures, of that Bible you hold in your hand. Ultimately, of course, it's a statement about the power of God himself, because all power derives from him. The Bible isn't magical. It doesn't have a power apart from God. But the point is, the Lord's word has a power derived from the Lord himself, which stands apart from any other power in the universe. Isaiah says it most powerfully in just one verse in Isaiah 55:11. He says, God speaking, so will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. I love that verse because it personifies the word in Isaiah. We're told that the Lord issues his word and then that word moves out into creation with a certain and unchanging power. It's described here as if it's got a will of its own. It's an agent of God. An emissary that God sends out. And that word is going to go out and do exactly what God has expected it to do. It cannot fail. It will not fail. And it's not merely a description of the fact that the Bible has power when we pay attention to it or that it has power to change us if we listen to it. No, what he's saying is it has a power to accomplish something whether you even hear it or not. It has a power to do as God intends whether you were ever born. It does not become a means through us to accomplish things. It has the power to do something all of its own. And the proof of that, of course, is Genesis chapter one. God speaks. Something happened all by itself, just by the power of what he said. And then he goes further and he says all creation, all creation acts in unison to accomplish the word that God proclaims. I want you to understand the the breadth of this statement or the breadth of this concept. All creation bows to the word of God, not just animate parts of creation, even the inanimate parts of creation respond to the word of God. Let me give you one example that proves this point. You may remember that moment when Jesus was riding a donkey entering into Jerusalem a few days before he was crucified. We call that Palm Sunday. You remember he was being greeted by a crowd that lined the road and put palm branches on the ground in front of his donkey and As he approaches into the city, the crowd begins to sing from Psalm 118. And you can hear that in Luke, Luke 19. Here's what you hear happening. Luke 19, 37. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, the crowd was singing, as I said, from Psalm 118, which is a messianic psalm. Let me give you another part of that psalm. I'm going to go back to the psalm itself. Just read you a small passage. Listen to what it describes. 118, verse 22. The stone 
which the builders rejected, has become the chief cornerstone. We know that's talking about Jesus, right? Then it goes a little further. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Oh, Lord, do save. We beseech you. Oh, Lord, we beseech you. Do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And it goes on. This psalm is the singing that is supposed to happen, according to Scripture, when the Messiah enters in to his reign. When the Lord comes to reign on earth, this will be sung. That's what the Bible says. That's what the word says itself. That's what this psalm says. So naturally, the people who aligned the road that day, they believed Jesus was their Messiah. And so they were doing what was required by Psalm 118. They were singing the psalm that they knew was required in the moment when Jesus entered into his kingdom. Now, they had the timing wrong, but it was no less a coming of Christ. And therefore, this was supposed to happen. Now, do you remember what else was going on in that moment as they were singing? The Pharisees were there. And we all know these guys had no faith that Jesus was Messiah. In fact, they were incensed at the idea that someone would think he was the Messiah. So how do you think they reacted when they heard the crowd singing the messianic welcome as Jesus walks in? Well, Luke 19.39 records that. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, If these become silent, the stones will cry out. Now, notice his response to the Pharisees. He simply says, friends, if we were to actually do what you ask and shut up the crowd, then the rocks on the ground would begin to sing this psalm. Now, I don't think he's speaking in hyperbola. I think he means it literally. I think what Jesus is saying is if people don't do what's required by the word of God in disobedience to the word, then the very creation itself, the inanimate creation, will respond with a joyful noise to comply with God's word, for God's word cannot go forth and return without accomplishing what God desires. It's literally impossible. Think about that for a minute. Whatever the word of God says will come to pass. The creation itself operates according to that truth, not just those of us who have a brain and a will and a heart and a heartbeat and so on. Even the rocks. Just thinking that makes me wish the crowd had shut up because I would just have loved to know what was that like to hear rocks crying out for Christ. Isaiah says the word will accomplish it. And in this context, back to Hebrews, the writer wants us to understand that the word of God has a power all its own to expose those who live in unbelief. That's the conclusion of this second warning, that unbelief will not go undetected, not forever. And in our limited capacity as human beings, we can be fooled. Our perception has limits. It's impossible for us to know definitively who amongst us knows the truth and who's just playing along. But for the one in the group who is posing, this writer wants that person to know the Lord will one day call all to account and unbelief will not go undetected. So how does the word of God do that? How does the word of God expose the hearts of men? Well, the writer gives us five ways in that passage. In fact, in just verse 12 alone, there are five ways in which the word of God is going to accomplish this end. First, the writer says the word of God is living. It's living. It's living in the sense that it has the power to grant men spiritual life. Paul tells us in Romans 
10.16 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The word of God imparts spiritual life. In fact, the word of God is the only thing in all creation that can bring dead things to life. Remember in the story of Lazarus, which you will get to in John's gospel, there's the moment when Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And of course, he comes to life, leaves the tomb. It's been said that if he hadn't put the word Lazarus at the beginning of that statement, all humanity would have come out of the grave in that moment. That he had to be specific because his power was so great in that word, he can raise the dead without limits. So the word of God is living. Only those who have truly heard the word of God will be made alive by it. But that's its power. Speaking of unbelief, if one is still in unbelief, it's a function of the fact that the word of God has not yet brought them to faith, not brought them to new life. Secondly, the word of God is not only living, but active. In the Greek, this word is energis or energis. It's literally the word from which we get energy, energy. In this context, what he's saying is the word of God is living and it has a power or an energy to accomplish something inside us. This is probably the least understood most overlooked quality of God's word. It explains why people don't understand the importance of studying it. It explains why people aren't given over to it more. It explains why some people think it's just a head game because they don't understand that the word of God can make rocks cry out. The word of God has power to compel in us changes, not because it convinces us to make a change, but because it has a power all its own to force change, to accomplish change, Despite what you want, which, by the way, is the only way you're going to get changed anyway. If you really think about it, who really wants to do something different than what they prefer? The only way you and I get sanctified is by the washing of the water of the word. There's a supernatural effect that the word has in our hearts. A group of people may study the same passage of scripture together and yet each one be convicted in a completely different way out of the very same text of scripture because the power of God's word is it can speak to us on unique issues in our own spiritual life from the same truth. It's active. One person in that group can be brought to faith. They can become a believer while the person sitting next to them, knowing the Lord already is convicted of some persistent sin in their life and the need to walk in greater holiness. And then a third person in that group could hear the spirit confirming to them it's time to move out into a new ministry. And another person in that group could be encouraged to know that God is patient and merciful and has wisdom to help them through a difficult time in their life. It doesn't really matter what their circumstances. The word is active enough to reflect needs across the board. And it's not just active in how it informs us. As I said earlier, it has a power to compel us to respond in the right way. Learning and submitting to the word of God. It's a supernatural power that ultimately transforms us into the will of Christ. As Paul says in Romans 12, 12, 2, he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Powerful word in the Greek made new again by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, which is good and acceptable and perfect. I personally believe if more Christians understood that the word of God has a power apart from their intellectual assent. They would spend more time in it. Got an addiction? Want to get over it? Spend time in the word of God. Have a grudge? You have something you can't let go of? Spend time in the word of God and let God take it away. Not because you'll read the right words that say how to stop doing those things or how to feel better. It's not about an intellectual process necessarily. But because as God works in your heart through the word of God, you change. 
with a power that's not explainable by psychology or culture or intellectualism, but because it's God working his will in you. You will prove, Paul says, what the will of God is as you transform, because it will be manifested in who you become. Third, the word of God, he says, is sharper than any two-edged sword. The word for sword here in Greek is important to understanding what he's saying. It means a small, sharp paring knife. Anybody here go fishing? And when you, okay, so when you fish, after the fish comes out of the water, you gotta clean the fish, right? Would you take a big butcher knife to do that? No, it's not very efficient, right? You take a small, sharp blade, one that has sharpness on both sides, and the whole idea is that you can debone and cut the fish up quickly because of the way the, the knife is shaped. That's the kind of knife being used here. That's the word being described in Greek for knife. It's referring to a sharp paring knife. In ancient Rome, this tile of knife, this short double-edged sword, was the symbol used by Roman judges and Roman magistrates to represent their power. We have something similar today. We have Lady Justice, right? She's a woman who's blindfolded, holding scales. And the idea there is to reflect lack of prejudice and fairness in the way we adjudicate. Well, the Roman system used a symbol in a similar way. They used a two-edged knife. It represented to them judges in their responsibility to cut both ways. In other words, to get to the bottom of the matter, to find out the truth, to cut away all the nonsense on both sides of the case, on both sides of the issue. So here the writer is using that symbol in a similar way to reflect how the word of God carves us up, so to speak, in judging the thoughts and intentions of our heart. The Lord's word will be the instrument by which the Lord performs a kind of post-mortem examination of every person's life. Whether that comes at the judgment seat of Christ for the believer or at the great white throne judgment for unbelievers. Either way, it will be the word of God that is the test of examination that reveals our life. We'll be judged by it. We'll be judged according to it according to its demands. So if somebody were an unbeliever, they did not trust yet in the Lord for their salvation, they have not come to know that truth, for them, at the great white throne judgment, their deeds will be revealed, we're told. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 20 that the unbeliever's deeds will be revealed in that moment. They will be judged. They will be laid bare for judgment. And the result of that judgment for the unbeliever will be eternal life in the lake of fire because they will not be able to stand against the word. The word will convict them. And the judgment for the believer is similar. Our outcome is very different, of course. By faith, we're saved from the judgment of the fire. But our rewards will be determined based on a similar standard. According to the word of God, our obedience to that word, our obedience to Christ's commands. How did we live? Fourthly, the word of God is piercing. This is different. It's not the same thing about the knife. We're talking here about something that's different. He says it's piercing to the point that it separates spirit from flesh. Now, you notice the writer actually uses four descriptions. Soul, spirit, joints, marrow. He's doing this in an artful way. He is not suggesting that we are made up of four things. We're only made up of two things, spirit and flesh. One goes in the grave, one is eternal. He uses two terms for each. Soul and spirit refers to the immaterial part of us. Joints and marrow refers to the fleshly part of us. Soul and spirit are synonyms in Scripture. I know sometimes we throw the words around with a little bit of difference in meaning, but the Bible does not make that distinction. They are synonyms. Soul, spirit, same thing. Joint, marrow, same thing. The point he's making here is that there are two parts to our existence, and they are going to be separated by the word of God. What do you mean by separated? Well, he's speaking here of the word's power to discern, 
between the motives of our flesh and the motives of our spirit. Friends, the same action that you and I take at two different times can be in the one case sinful and in another case be walking in faith, even though they look exactly the same. For example, you could make a donation to a church with the intent to support the work of the Lord as an act of faith. Or you could make that very same donation to a church to gain favor with the leadership in the church or to gain honor and attention from your peers. Two similar actions, totally different intentions. One is sin, one is not. You and I are not perceptive enough sometimes to notice the difference between these two things. But the word of God is perceptive enough to discern whether an action we take is driven by the flesh or whether it is a response to faith in our heart. And once again, the word of God is going to judge us. And we're only going to gain God's pleasure for the acts we did in faith. And then notice he says it's also able to judge between thoughts and intentions. This one's even more insightful. Earlier, it says he's able to discern between two actions, one done in flesh, one done in spirit. But it goes deeper. He's able to discern between two different thoughts, a good thought and a bad thought, even if we never take any action on those thoughts. Remember when Jesus himself said that thoughts have the potential to be sin? He says, you've heard it said in Matthew 5, you've heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery in her heart. Well, God is going to judge both the thoughts and the intentions of our heart. God's word is such a perfect judge that it doesn't only reveal what we thought, it will also reveal what we intended by the thought. Think about that the next time. You're entertaining a sinful thought in your brain. Think about the fact that already judgment is at hand. There's already consequences forming. And friends, I know we've all been forgiven by the blood of Christ for the penalty of those sinful thoughts. And I'm not trying to resurrect your guilt in that regard. But the writer's point is that even those actions that were covered by the blood of Christ will not go hidden on the day of our judgment. They will be exposed, not for the sake of condemnation, But they do come to bear on the rewards that God may hold out for us. So we should still take a concerned interest in whether we're taking captive our thoughts, whether our actions are in keeping with faith. These things should matter to us because the word of God is going to reveal it. And then finally, the fifth thing, the writer says, there is no creature, no demon, no angel, no unbeliever, no believer who will hide from his judgment. Everything about your life. Everything about my life is going to be laid open and bare. Everything we think, everything we want, everything we do, everything we don't do, the things you're thinking right now is going to be subject to a judgment that hinges or centers on the word of God. There's no moment that goes unassessed by the word of God. He now has given us everything we need to encourage one another to do the things we should do in the day that we still have. For if that's not enough, I don't know what else he could tell you. If fear of God is not enough, there's nothing else to offer. And now he moves forward with an introduction to his next section of teaching. With the time we have today, we'll only deal with the end of this chapter as it sets up the next topic. Verses 14 through 16, he says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
These verses are the introduction, as I mentioned. This next section addresses a major pillar of Judaism. I call them pillars. One of them is the priesthood. Jews looked to their priesthood as a central tenet, a central pillar that gave them their identity. And as with the earlier issue of angels, which we've already studied in this letter, this issue centers on a comparison between the value and the purpose of older things with the new and better things that are found in Christ. The writer introduces this section in verse 14, and the statement here sounds very much like the way he delved into the second warning. In fact, that's intentional. Flip back with me for a minute. I want you to go back and look at chapter 3 for just a second. That's where the second warning began. Look at how he exited where he was going, took a short detour, as I call it, gave the second warning, and now he's coming back on to where he was headed. And you can see that detour real clearly if you look at the verse that immediately precedes verse 7. That's where he ended. He says, but Christ was faithful as a son over his house. And then you see that dash? Mine has a dash. Do you all have a dash in your Bible? Maybe not. Maybe a comma. But right there is where he takes his sidestep. He says, oh, whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and boast of hope firm until the end. He gets your attention there with that if, doesn't he? He's tracking along saying we're part of this house. This is what it means to be in Christ's house. This is what it means compared to Moses as a servant in the house and so on. And he says, oh, but you're in that house if, suggesting, well, not all of you are. And that gets everyone asking, well, how do I know if I am? What do you mean not in the house? And that's what led him into the second warning. Now look at verse 14, which is what we just read again. Back to verse 14 of chapter 4. Notice how similar this is to verse 6 of chapter 3. He says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. He's back on track to where he had been in verse 6. So he's back to talking about a house that is the church, one that Christ built, one that we're a part of by faith, and he's still comparing it to Moses and to an earlier house, so to speak, under another covenant, the covenant of law. And now he reaches the next point in the comparison. These houses have priests. This house has a priest, a high priest. The older house had high priests. The high priest, of course, in the day of Moses and under the law of Israel, were those men who were appointed to serve under the law for the sake of Israel. They were men who were given this title and this role for a period of time. Today, our high priest, as he says, is Christ. And in this introduction, the writer is going to mention numerous ways in which Christ is superior to the men who fulfilled that role earlier. First, he says, our high priest has passed through the heavens. Now, this makes perfect sense. The writer is speaking of the proximity, or you could say the position of our high priest in relationship to the father who he's intended to intercede to on behalf of the church. So where was the high priest in Israel's day? He stood on the earth. He walked into a tabernacle. He looked at a box we call the ark. And he had to do something once a year in the Holy of Holies in front of the ark on behalf of the nation of Israel on the day of Yom Kippur or the day of atonement. One day a year on the earth in front of a box that was a manifestation of God's glory that contained a manifestation of God's glory. That's what the high priest of Israel did. But our high priest, where is he? He actually passed through the heavens. He went right next to the father. In proximity terms, he's a lot closer to the Father than any earthly high priest could ever get. He's not bound to the earth anymore. He's in an elevated position. He's at the right hand of the Father, the most elevated position. There is no man of flesh closer to the Father right now than Christ is in terms of proximity. And he's there 24-7, never departs from that moment, whereas the high priest of Israel only went in one day of every year according to the law. 
And the high priest of Israel had to go in and represent all of Israel in that moment for the sake of intercession without the benefit of knowing each person or their thoughts or their needs. He didn't carry that knowledge in his head. He didn't have it written out on a piece of paper. He went in there in a symbolic way, representing them as the law required, but without a personal identity with anybody or knowledge of what they needed. The high priest of Israel was only a man, isolated from the people. He couldn't meet every member of the nation of Israel. He wasn't like Santa. He didn't go to the mall and sit there and have everyone in Israel sit on his lap and tell him exactly what they needed before he walked into the Holy of Holies. The function that he performed didn't require that. He went in, sprinkled the blood like Leviticus required, walked out, called it a day. I'll see you here next year. That was the role of the high priest. Our high priest, despite the fact that there are millions and millions, if not billions of Christians alive, our high priest can literally hear every petition that's raised up to him simultaneously. And in hearing them all, he can remember them all. And he can understand them all. And he can represent all of them to the Father as our high priest seated to the right hand of the Father. There's just no comparison between what a high priest in Israel could accomplish versus what the high priest in heaven can accomplish for us now. Moreover, the Son's perfection and his oneness with the Father ensures that his prayers are received by the Father. The Father is not going to miss any of them. And then in verse 15, the writer says that when our high priest hears, he does so with great sympathy and great understanding. He's not some dispassionate messenger who just relays the data. Because of his humanity, he has the ability to understand from a personal experience what we're asking him for, and that informs his own perspective. He was tempted in all things, the writer says, and he has the very same temptations you and I have experienced. He knows the moment that you and I both know when we're drawn away by sin and when we enter into temptation and it's consummated in sin. He knows exactly what that is like. He just never took the step of sin. Here's the writer's point in that. We have to seek him for his guidance and for his power and for his intervention while we're encountering the temptation, not afterward. People ask me about how to become better at prayer. And my recommendations are this. First, don't make it a special moment. There are moments that are special. There is the closet moment, but don't make that the only moment. You're driving, you're walking, you're sitting in your classroom, you're sitting at work. Prayer should just be a conscious flow of thought all day long. Father, help me make this light. Father, I need a parking space. Find a parking space for me right now. Don't let me be late for this meeting. I don't know how I'm going to get this assignment done by three. Help me get it done by three. Those are not mantras. Those are not just superstition. You're talking to the Lord. He's hearing you. You can hear every single thing you say in that respect. And you're putting everything before him as a function of everyday life. That's a good prayer life. If you think a good prayer life is what they portray in the movies or something you see in a monastery, you're not getting it. You're not going to find five hours every day to sit in a closet and pray to, in a dark room. I mean, you know, we all think that's spiritual. No one's doing that that I know of. But if you're praying, like Paul says, without ceasing, you can't spend all day in a closet. So without ceasing means you come out of the closet still praying. And in that conversation, you're starting to put things in front of God well before you're in an urgent moment. That's the first point. The second point is what the writer, I think, is saying here. If you and I wait until after we have sinned, after we've been tempted and fallen, before we raise something up to God, we've missed a great opportunity to gain the blessing of having a high priest who knows what we're feeling. That's the whole point of having a high priest who knows what you felt before. He can intervene in the moment to help you through it. 
You know the moments we stop, we face temptation in a moment, something is grabbing our attention, we have a decision to make right then. In that moment, we can raise that up in prayer, like I said in the first example, where it's a continuous conversation with God. Here's that feeling again, God, I can see myself walking down this path. I've done this a thousand times, and every time I get to this point, I fall. I know exactly what's coming next. How about this time, Father, stop me now. Figure out how to stop me now. James says that he will give us the power to avoid temptation. I like to think of it like an exit ramp on a freeway. It's like you're on a freeway, you're headed down a course that you've seen before, you know where it's going, you can feel everything happening the way it always does, you're about to buy the thing you shouldn't buy, or say the thing you're not supposed to say, or think the thing you're not supposed to think, or watch the thing you're not supposed to watch, or do the thing you're not supposed to do. And you see it coming, it's been there before, and this time you're starting to tell yourself, because of the word of God in your heart, you're hearing yourself say, I shouldn't do this, how can I stop it? And you remember this lesson. You remember Hebrews 4 and you say, i got a high priest who's been here before. But he didn't sin. It's like having a buddy who always makes the right decisions in the situation that you're always making the wrong decision. Here's your chance to get some buddy advice. How do you avoid this? Only the difference is he has supernatural power to actually compel your changed heart to do the right thing. But he doesn't do it automatically, as scripture would seem to indicate. There's this opportunity to appeal. If you appeal to him in that moment, he puts a, an exit ramp on the freeway right when you need it. And you just have to take the exit. If you do that, if you understand he has the power through the spirit working in you to show you a better way to give you victory over those moments, then pray before you make the decision. Don't pray afterward for the forgiveness. Yes, you can do that, too. And he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. We know that. But that's not the solution. The solution is to avoid the sin in the first place. And he has the power to do that because he knows what it feels like. He will give you, in my opinion, he will give you the supernatural solution that he himself had at his disposal, which enabled him not to sin when he faced a similar temptation. He'll share the secret, so to speak. That's what the writer concludes in verse 16. He says, we should draw near to the throne of grace with a confidence that the Lord will hear and respond and equip us to receive a better judgment. That's the connection between the end of this chapter and the beginning of the next. Our concerns in life should be informed by an understanding that we're going to be laid bare for judgment one day. Everything is going to be exposed. None of these moments in which we face temptation and made the wrong decision will go unnoticed. They'll all come into an accounting. Well, then it would only make sense that we should do everything we can to ensure that when that judgment comes, the result will be to our benefit, doesn't it? Well, then we face this inevitable conclusion in our head. How can I possibly ensure a good judgment? He's got that big paring knife up there and he's going to carve me up. Well, now we're thinking too much about the judgment of God and not enough about the mercy and love of that very same God. The love of God, the mercy of God is that he installed for our benefit a high priest who has the knowledge and experience of what it means to live as a man but also the power to compel us into righteous living. And he's ready and waiting for the request, ready to intercede 24-7. And the writer gives us a boost of confidence, saying the Lord is prepared to grant us the mercy and the grace necessary to persevere in those times of need. The times of need, of course, refers here to moments in which we're tempted to sin and we feel weakness in our flesh. The moments where we've been there before, we know what's coming. And he says, because Jesus knows what you feel, he supernaturally can help you succeed. Just ask him. Just ask him. That's the hard part. I mean, for us, that's the hard part. The hard part is actually wanting to stop that chain of events. 
to see it, to know what it is, to know it's wrong, to understand there's a consequence, to remember there's a judgment coming, to know that you're not going to be able to hide it, even if you can hide it now from your mom or your dad or your wife or your husband or your pastor or your friends, even if you can do it now, it's not going to be hidden forever. He's going to carve it open. It's going to be laid bare. Now you have some incentive to say, well, gee, I don't really think I want to keep doing this then. There's some real consequences here. I don't want to have those consequences. And yet I feel powerless to stop this behavior. How do I change? The writer says, you've got to remember, you've got a high priest who's capable of doing that. Just appeal to him. I assure you, and I know this from personal experience, but it wouldn't have to be based on experience. I have the word of God telling me this. But I can tell you from personal experience, when I have stopped in my tracks and made that simple moment a moment of prayer, Lord, all right, it's coming. I feel it. I know what I'm going to do. If you don't stop me, help me. He does. Suddenly you don't feel like doing it. Suddenly there's an alternative. Suddenly the phone rings and interrupts your plans. I'm about to spend more money than I should on something on Amazon. Gosh, that's so easy. Darn those people. They make it so easy. One click and you're done. And I'm thinking, Lord, I I just feel so tempted to buy this, but I shouldn't buy it. Stop me. And then Internet goes down. No joke. That's happened to me more than once. That's happening more than once. And I don't have a bad Internet connection generally. And you know when that happens? Chills go up your spine. You're like, this works. It's real. You get a confidence boost in your faith because God shows up like he was always prepared to do. It's not it's not a genie. It's not magic. It's God at work. But he's working according to his word, the word that does not go out and return to him without accomplishing what he set forth. Right now, will this work perfectly? No, but it has nothing to do with God's weakness or in his inability. It has to do with our flesh. I've seen those moments when that exit ramp was offered and I blew right past it. He doesn't necessarily force you up the ramp, but what he does is he gives you the option you asked for. He shows you the way out. You know, even after that phone call came and interrupted the plans I had, I still got off the phone and had another moment of decision, didn't I? The Internet eventually came back and very helpfully, Amazon kept my cart ready again. You know, all this is to say the next time you face temptation and sin, take a moment Pause in your tracks. Consider that there is a judgment, that there is a moment where all will be laid bare. No one will not have everything exposed. No one will be able to take a secret into into heaven. And yet the father wants you to succeed in those moments. So he has put a high priest at the right hand of the father who is capable of working you through that moment because he knows what it feels like. So with that confidence and with a fear of God. Lift up a prayer to the Father in the name of Christ. Ask him to stop your temptation. Ask him to grant you victory over it. Ask him to give you the spiritual power to win the battle the way he did himself when he walked the earth. And then get ready. Watch the Lord respond. Watch him help you ensure a better judgment. Because he wants that too. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that you loved us enough to take our, our sin on on your behalf and pay that price. But then you went a step further, Father, and you've enabled us through the power of the spirit to conquer sin in our own life. But you have put us in a position, Father, to seek that that solution and, and perhaps ignore the opportunity for it. And I pray, Father, that what we learned today would give us confidence, renewed confidence to live according to your word. And to seek to please you. So that our judgment would be good. Thank you for a church, Father, that preaches these things and reminds us of what it means to live in the walk that you've given us as Christians. And I pray you bring us back next week, Father, so we continue understanding these important matters. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.